0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of the Fashion Law Network Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I have a great episode today. It's all about the iconic American department store Neiman Marcus and the drama that's been going on with their bankruptcy and a few various legal cases that they have been involved with. On May 7, 2020, Neiman Marcus became the first major department store to file for bankruptcy protection during the pandemic. They then exited the bankruptcy at the end of September this year, and concurrently, starting back in 2018, Neiman Marcus was also embroiled in a major legal battle with hedge fund company Marble Ridge Capital. Now, this legal battle reads like a legal thriller book complete with what the press was calling a nemesis. And then in a dark turn of events, this so-called nemesis was actually recently arrested um, at the beginning of September. So I'll go over the details of that case in the second half of this episode. And then if that wasn't enough for Neiman Marcus, they're also involved in a copyright infringement lawsuit with an Alaskan native tribe. I've discussed this lawsuit before, starting in Season 1, Episode 4 of my podcast. That lawsuit was initially filed back in April of 2020. However, there have been significant updates since then, and I will go over that at the end of the episode. We'll get into all those details now. So first, here's some brief history of Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus Group, Inc., originally Neiman Marcus, is a popular U.S.-based chain of luxury department stores, which are owned by the Neiman Marcus Group, headquartered in Dallas, Texas. The company also owns the two Bergdorf-Goodman department stores in New York City, and they operate a direct marketing division called Neiman Marcus Direct, which has catalog and online operations under the Horchow, Bergdorf-Goodman, and Neiman Marcus names. Now, Neiman Marcus has a very rich and interesting history It was started all the way back in 1907 in Dallas, Texas, and it was founded by Herbert Marcus, his sister, Carrie Marcus Neiman, and his brother-in-law, Al Neiman. The trio's initial investment was $25,000, and the store that they opened was very unique. It was lavishly furnished, and it had these clothing that were not commonly found in Texas, Within just a few weeks, the store's initial inventory was totally sold out, and a lot of oil-rich Texans really wanted to flaunt their wealth, and they loved the new store. Now, Stanley Marcus was in charge of the company's operations, and he really further established the store, and also he wrote a really great book titled Minding the Store. It was a memoir, and I highly recommend it. I'll leave a link to it in the episode notes of the description of the episode below if anybody would want to check it out. And the company then continued its extravagant marketing efforts, including the launch of the His and Hers Gifts in their famous annual Christmas book. However, I just read today, um, what's the date today, October 25th that Neiman Marcus will not be coming out with a physical annual Christmas book, but it will only be digital. So some sort of digital version of that, Um, which is unfortunate for me because I look forward to that every year. They have some really amazing, beautiful gifts and then some really extravagant fantasy gifts that are fun to look at. But I guess everything is changing this year in terms of fashion. So anyway, back to uh, the history here. So then things kind of changed when Stanley Marcus died in 2002. He had served as president and chairman of the board for the company for many, many years. And he was the architect behind a lot of the fashion shows in the store um, and the Christmas catalog also. Now, over the past 20 years, ownership of Neiman Marcus has passed through many hands. Neiman Marcus is currently owned by the Toronto-based Canada Pension Plan Investment Board and Los Angeles-based ARES Management, A-R-E-S. Of note is that Neiman Marcus is also the owner of MyTheresa.com. They acquired it in 2014, and it's a German luxury fashion e-commerce store, um, and they also have a flagship store called Teresa. Really great store. They have some really... Um, cutting-edge, kind of avant-garde designers, along with a lot of the more established designers. Now, on a personal note, I am a very loyal Neiman Marcus shopper. Neiman's has always been my favorite department store for as long as I can remember. And actually, as soon as I was old enough to get a credit card, I remember running to the Neiman Marcus store so I could get one of their store credit cards so that I could participate in their famous In Circle Rewards program, which at the time was very novel. And from what I recall... No other major department stores were doing these kind of rewards clubs back then. There's just something really special about Neiman Marcus compared to any other department store out there for me. Their impeccable attention to detail and the sales associates are like none other that I've ever met in another department store. I also love their store cafes and um, restaurants. So personally, I was very, very happy to hear that Neiman's had emerged from their bankruptcy protection the other month. Another interesting fact is that up until 2018, Neiman Marcus had a CEO for 33 years. Now, this is a very long CEO tenure in the retail sector. This famed CEO was Karen Katz, and she actually started out at Neiman Marcus as an assistant store manager many years ago. And climbed the ranks, she became CEO, and she held that position until her retirement in 2018. According to the Wall Street Journal, during Ms. Katz's tenure, she pushed Neiman Marcus into the digital age and added more women to the top ranks. Actually, about half of Neiman's senior executives are female. I also got a chance to attend, well, virtually a webinar regarding the future of fashion the other week where Miss Katz was a panelist, and she had some really interesting things to say about the future of retail, such as she discussed future trends of digitization of supply chains, shortening supply chains where companies may be ordering inventory only six to nine months in advance, and discussing how there are less collections coming in and the differences in the way consumers buy today than how they used to. So then when Miss Katz retired in 2018, Jeffrey Van Ramdonk became the CEO. He is Belgian-born, and before this job, he served as group president for Europe, Africa, the Middle East um, at Ralph Lauren from November 2014 until December 2017, in addition to a lot of other fashion jobs before that. And according to a biography of his from the Business of Fashion website, it's reported that he's working to overhaul the long-struggling luxury retail group by really focusing on in store experiences and shaking up its portfolio with a minority investment in reseller fashion file. Now, this investment in luxury reseller fashion file will hopefully be a good one since, as I've discussed previously on this podcast series, the luxury reseller market is doing very well in the current retail climate. I'm sure it wasn't easy for Mr. Jeffrey to come to Neiman's when. He did because the company was struggling at that time amid its almost 5 million, 5, sorry billion debt. Mr. Jeffrey has also been in the news for other reasons which are not so positive. Most recently, there was a New York Post article titled, Neiman Marcus Shows Off Mansion While Employees Get Pink Slips. The article goes on to say that, Mr. Jeffrey is angering his employees because he's flaunting his wealth in the midst of bankruptcy. So this article was written before Neiman's emerged from the bankruptcy, but still. um, The bankruptcy led to job losses and pay cuts for many employees. He was also featured in the Paper City magazine, which is where he displayed his very, very opulent home, And the Post reported that before that, on March 30th, Neiman Marcus announced it would be furloughing a majority of their 14,000 employees or cutting their salaries. Um, Mr. Jeffrey at the time said he would waive 100% of his salary. Now, since this podcast is focused on intellectual property, namely patents and trademarks, I think this will be a good time to go over some of these and how they relate to Neiman Marcus since Neiman Marcus owns many patents and trademarks. Now just as a quick sidebar here, I wanted to tie in some new patent law which is associated with Neiman Marcus. As I've explained in my previous episodes, the three types of patents are a utility patent which protects the way something works, A design patent, which protects the ornamental appearance of the invention only. And then there's a third kind of rare type of patent called a plant patent. Um, It's pretty rare, especially in the fashion world. But in this case, Neiman Marcus actually owns a plant patent. Um, A plant patent protects a new and unique plant's key characteristics from being copied or used by others. A patentable plant can be natural bred or somatic, meaning it can be created from non-reproductive cells of the plant. It can be invented or discovered, but a plant patent will only be granted to a discovered plant if the discovery is made in a cultivated area. The plant must also be asexually reproducible, and the reproduction must be genetically identical to the original and performed through methods such as root cuttings, bulbs, division, or grafting, and budding to establish the plant stability. Two birds, like potatoes, are not eligible for plant patents, nor are plants that are unique only because of their growing conditions. So Neiman Marcus is the owner of a plant patent, which is titled Rose Plant, and it's a patent for a new and distinct variety of rose plants, of the hybrid tea class, which is described as being pink, which lightens upon aging. I'll copy the link to the patent at the bottom of the notes for this episode if anyone is curious as to what a plant patent looks like. Now let's talk about the timeline here for Neiman Marcus. Um, Let's start in late March of this year. When Newman Marcus stopped accepting new merchandise and they furloughed a large portion of their almost 14,000 employees and there were already rumors of a bankruptcy happening. Now, even before the COVID pandemic, large department stores were really starting to struggle. Of course, the Internet was a major issue since so many people buy online now and foot traffic has really decreased due to all this online shopping. Add to that the fact that it's thought that the rise of the department store coincided with the rise of the middle class, and now the demise seems to be parallel to the decrease of the middle class. According to a report from the Pew Research Center, which is a nonpartisan American think tank based in Washington, D.C., they kind of provide information on social issues, demographic trends, which shape the United States and the world. Um, What this seems to suggest in retail is a trend called the great retail bifurcation. And what this means is that retailers are succeeding by focusing on either the really high luxury end of the market or on the other end of the spectrum, the kind of bargain basement end. And retailers in the middle are kind of falling away. So Returning to Neiman Marcus now, as I mentioned earlier, on May 7th of 2020, Neiman Marcus filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, citing inexplorable pressure from the coronavirus pandemic. Now, just real quick, by way of very general bankruptcy law, I'm obviously not any sort of bankruptcy law expert, but just a quick overview Um, a chapter 11 bankruptcy is a reorganization. Um, and then you have a chapter seven bankruptcy, which is a liquidation. So in a chapter seven bankruptcy, absolutely everything in the company gets sold off. And then the proceeds from that go to the creditors. So the chapter seven bankruptcy is a pretty bleak option to take, but it is sometimes necessary Um, Where the business goes out of business and then the banks that lent the bankrupt company money over the years are probably not going to get their money back. So for everybody involved, a chapter 11 bankruptcy is preferred because that's where the lenders get paid back. And the best way of doing that is by having the business continue to operate and make money. So a Chapter 11 bankruptcy typically helps a company restructure their debts and obligations while still remaining open, at least temporarily. And then if all goes well, you get to exit the Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And um, that's if a plan for operating the business is agreed upon or there's a sale reached. Now, courts usually want businesses to succeed, So the reorganization route is preferred versus the liquidation, and obviously it's better for the economy if the business continues to be operational and profitable. And so that's what happened here on September 25th when Neiman Marcus announced that they emerged from their Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection with a restructuring plan that eliminated $4 billion in debt and $200 million in annual interest expenses. Now, as all these bankruptcy issues were going on that Neiman Marcus was facing starting in May 2020 when they initially filed, there's been a really major separate legal battle that Neiman Marcus has been facing concurrently and even before, going all the way back to 2018. So, let's talk about this part now. It all started in September 2018, when according to PR Newswire, the Neiman Marcus Board of Directors received a very interesting letter from Marble Ridge Capital, which is a debt investment firm involved with Neiman Marcus with Dan Kamensky as the managing partner. And this letter Challenged the validity of various asset transfers and asserted that the company was in default under bond indentures. So, Marble Ridge is a holder of Neiman Marcus's um, 8.75% senior notes and term loans. And they're really focused in this letter on a recent transfer of the My Teresa Company from the Neiman's business without any consideration to private equity owners, heirs, and CPPIB. Those are the two current owners of Neiman Marcus, the Canadian Pension Group and the LA-based heirs management. PR Newswire then quotes from the actual letter from Blue Ridge, which states, quote, these transactions appear to be an attempt to move the My Teresa business beyond the reach of existing creditors, Sitting between the sponsor's equity and the valuable My Teresa assets, Mar- Marble Ridge had has reason to believe that the company was insolvent at the time of the transactions. Moreover, a dividend or other form of a spinoff by an insolvent guarantor to its equity sponsors for no consideration has all the hallmarks of an intentional or constructive fraudulent transfer, and raises serious questions of breaches of duty of care and loyalty with exposure for heirs and the Canadian pension plan uh, company, CPPIB. So basically, it looks like the Marble Ridge Company thinks that My Teresa should have been sold to satisfy some of the debts instead of transferring it with this no consideration. Now, just as a quick side note here, this case deals with somewhat complex finance issues and I'm not any sort of finance expert, but I'm just going to try my best to give an overview of this complex situation here. So then after this letter from Marble Ridge on December 10th, 2018, so what's that, like three months after this initial letter, Marble Ridge filed a lawsuit against Neiman Marcus and their domestic and various international corporate identities in state court in Dallas. And the lawsuit was was mostly based on the items that were in that September letter. Of course, of particular note was the transfer of the Teresa to the heirs and CPPIB, which are separate from Neiman's corporate entity, which is called Neiman Marcus Group. So in reading the petition that was filed by Marble Ridge on September 10, 2018 in um, the Dallas court, I'm going to quote straight from the document here. So here's what they state. This fraudulent transfer and receiver action arrive from an integrated two-step scheme orchestrated by parent to loot the company and to hinder, delay, and defraud creditor of the company by transferring assets representing approximately $1 billion of value to the parent for no consideration. This scheme perpetrated for the benefit of the indirect beneficial owners of the company heirs and the CPPIB. The company is a debtor under the fraudulent transfer law applicable to the transfers by reasons of its obligations to repay money under the indentures of the credit agreement and other agreements. Marble Ridge is the statutory creditor of the company. Now, these are my own comments, so this is obviously why Marble Ridge has a lot of stake here because they state that they are the alleged statutory creditor of the company. Then the petition goes on to describe some of the history of the Neiman Marcus loans, goes on to allege how this, quote, scheme transfer was performed. They go into the various steps, um, the purpose being to remove valuable assets from the company Um, they could have used to satisfy the claims of the company's creditors. Instead, as a result of these schemes, and I'm reading straight from the petition again, these assets have been placed beyond the reach of the creditors in order to hinder and delay creditor recovery. Now, this 25-page petition goes into way more detail than I'm providing here, but since I try to keep my episodes under 30 minutes, obviously, I can't get into every detail here. So, Then once Marble Ridge filed this petition, Neiman Marcus filed their answer, also very detailed, and they added a few claims like um, business disparagement and defamation in relation to the various statements that Marble Ridge had made in their September letter to that Neiman Marcus board. Neiman Marcus also alleged that Marble Ridge lacked subject matter jurisdiction because they're not a creditor- or lender based on the loan agreement. Then in March of 2019, the court ended up throwing out the Marble Ridge case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction with prejudice. Now this means that Marble Ridge can't file another lawsuit based on the same grounds. So then as we all know, Next up in the timeline is May of 2020, when Neiman Marcus filed for the Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And as reported by the website Institutional Investor, Neiman's reached a settlement over the summer with their unsecured creditors, including Marble Ridge, by allocating 140 million Series B shares of the My Teresa business to them. Now, the problem with that was that the shares were not liquid, and some of these unsecured creditors need cash. So then what happened was Marble Ridge came and proposed to buy some of the other shares in order for them to get the cash, and this seemed to be going forward. So then again, according to the Institutional Investor Report, Um, At the end of July, when Dan Kamensky, who, of course, is the owner of Marble Ridge, allegedly heard that another investment bank, Jefferies, well, a client of that bank, was allegedly planning on making a higher bid on these My Teresa shares than the amount that Marble Ridge had planned for them. So then it's reported that Jeffries started putting together a formal bid to buy the shares from any unsecured creditor that wanted to uh, sell. And then again, according to the institutional investor, that same day, um, allegedly when Kamensky heard that Jeffries had contacted the unsecured creditors committee. Now, this is a committee whose job it is to maximize recovery of assets for everyone on the committee in a bankruptcy proceeding. So when Jeffries contacted this committee's counsel and allegedly offered to buy the My Teresa shares at only 30 cents, it is reported by the institutional investor that Kamensky got angry and his anger got the best of him because he allegedly started communicating with the Jeffries representative via Bloomberg chat and over the phone. In particular, one alleged Bloomberg chat by Kamensky seemed quite damaging, where it is alleged that he said, or chatted, quote, do not send in a bid in all capitals. Marble Ridge was also a client of Jeffrey's, and Kamensky allegedly threatened to take his business away from this bank if Jeffrey's... Did not withdraw their bid. Now, remember, this is all allegedly happening within one day. So, then again, according to the institutional investor, uh, Jeffries allegedly told their client that they're not going to put a bid on the shares. And they allegedly contacted the counsel for Marble Ridge, told them both their communications with Kamensky at which point it is alleged that Kamensky went into full panic mode and made some allegedly damaging statements. And I won't get into those in detail, but I did find a few websites which provide the transcripts for some of these communications. Um, then things further take another dark turn when, in mid-August, the Wall Street Journal reported that Marble Ridge Capital is shutting down after a government inquiry found that the founder, Dan Kamensky, tried to suppress bidding for a piece of Neiman Marcus Group Limited. And then after more investigations, in the early morning of September 3rd, federal agents stormed into Mr. Kamensky's Long Island home, and arrested Dan Kamensky on four counts of criminal fraud, securities fraud, wire fraud, extortion and bribery, and obstruction of justice. So that's a pretty sad case. I think it'd be really tough to be an attorney involved in that one. Um, During the summer in my law school days, I was a law clerk for a judge in the Miami criminal courthouse, and that was definitely not for me. I mean, the work was really interesting, but it was a very, very emotionally taxing experience, so I have a lot of admiration for people in that field. It's definitely not easy. Now, if that wasn't enough drama associated with Neiman Marcus, they're also currently involved in a copyright infringement lawsuit. I've discussed this case at various stages throughout my podcast series, but I'll just give a quick synopsis here and then the latest update. So in April of this year, Neiman Marcus was sued for copyright infringement, among a few other claims, in a lawsuit initiated by the Sealaska Heritage Institute, alleging the that Neiman Marcus falsely affiliated garments sold by them with Native artisans through its use of the term Raven's Tail, which is one of the great weaving traditions of the northern Northwest Coast Native tribes, thereby unlawfully infringing their copyright. This case is thought to be the first time a business has been sued in the United States for copying a traditional indigenous pattern. Neiman's was trying to sell the sweater cardigan, which allegedly is copying this Raven's tail weaving traditional item for over $2,000 on their website. So back in September, when I looked up the recent docket history of this case, it looked like Neiman's got a few extensions for replying to the initial complaint that Sealaska filed, and then Neiman's answer was due August thirty first. Instead of answering, Silaska filed an amended complaint. This is not new. Unu- this is not unusual. It probably means that Silaska communicated with Neiman's, told them instead of filing an answer, they're going to file an amended complaint. So this amended complaint is a little different than their original. The main difference being that they're adding a few more defendants. So not just Neiman's, but also. Alinui, which is the actual Italian knitwear brand, which according to the cemented complaint is allegedly the producer, supplier, and importer of the Ravenstail knitted coat to Neiman Marcus. Uh, They also added, I believe, my Teresa, Farfetch, among a few other defendants here. Um, Then there was a motion by the defendants to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction in mid-September By some of the defendants, and then Defendant Farfetch filed their motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction at the beginning of October. Now I'll just briefly go over this September 14th Neiman Marcus, my Teresa motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. I won't get into the Farfetch motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction in too much detail right now, just because this episode is focused on Neiman Marcus, but I will go over that one when I do a whole um, longer episode on the details of this once there is a little bit more action in this case. So the September 14th, Neiman Marcus, my Teresa motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction or alternatively motion to transfer to the U.S. District Court um, for the Southern District of Texas. Basically, the defendants try to argue that See, Alaska doesn't have the required jurisdiction to include them in this lawsuit. So, I'm just going to quote a few paragraphs straight from their motion here. So, first, this court does not have personal jurisdiction over either Neiman Marcus or My Teresa because the amended complaint, like the original complaint, fails to allege that Neiman's and My Teresa have any connection to Alaska whatsoever. Plaintiffs do not allege that defendants Neiman Marcus and My Teresa reside, operate, or conduct business in the District of Alaska or that any alleged infringement or unlawful conduct occurred in this district. Accordingly, this case should be dismissed for improper venue, but then they add in that if the court finds it's in the interest of justice to transfer the case, rather to dismiss, it should be transferred to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas, which is, of course, where Neiman Marcus is headquartered. Now, this motion is over 30 pages, so obviously I've just provided a very short synopsis of it here, but I can leave a link to it in my episode notes if anybody would want to read the motion in full. Neiman's does present some pretty interesting arguments. So then a few weeks later, Silaska files their response to this. It's called response in opposition to defendants Neiman Marcus and Mike Teresa's motion to dismiss or alternatively to transfer to the Southern District of Texas. And they state, also just a synopsis here, and I'm reading straight from their opposition here, plaintiffs' Sealaska Heritage Institute respectfully urge the court to deny the motion to dismiss or transfer venue because the defendants are subject to the personal jurisdiction of this court Venue is proper, plaintiffs have standing under the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, and have sufficiently pled trademark ownership and copyright infringement, and moving defendants have improperly conflated their own independent liability with that of the two debtor defendants. So I will keep this case on my calendar. I will check it in a few weeks for any updates, and then I will provide those on a more detailed uh, future episode, since I did really gloss over both of these motions. And that concludes this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned next week for the next episode, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye!